Welcome to the Channel 17 Podcast, a weekly Atlanta Braves discussion podcast brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and joining me as always is my father, Tim Floyd. Yes, Will, it's great to be with you, and we're getting closer and closer to real baseball being played. Yes. Slow off season, but... Um, we always have plenty to talk about anyway, don't we? And we are getting so close. We are under two weeks from pitchers and catchers reporting. That happens on Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, followed by full squad workouts. We're like a month away from actual baseball being played. Not that it counts for anything, and it's a bunch of guys well, you've never heard even of. Even so, just knowing baseball's being played, it puts yeah. a spring in my step. So that's good news. Uh, there is no other baseball. That's not news. because I'm excited about the upcoming Braves season necessarily. That's anything that's for later. But just the fact that they're playing baseball podcast. is still a good thing. Um, the only real baseball news is players and agents are starting to get really annoyed that no one's been signed. Yeah, um, it, it is the quietest off season I ever remember, except maybe when Tim Raines got screwed. Which, I mean, which of course is what people are talking about. Is this like the collusion of the '80s? Could you imagine um, if the Marlins weren't having a fire sale? Yeah, that's the only thing that's happened, actually, so far, is the Marlins getting rid of good players. So, oh, and the Pirates, those two teams, you know, giving right. away their best players. But other than that... So, we don't have much. The only thing that's at all touched the Braves is people who keep going like, do you think we can have Todd Frazier on a two-year deal that doesn't cost much money? But I don't that, think that's, that's real. That's the kind of thing you have to talk about, and that's, you know, it's just not that interesting one way or the other. So and instead, I- we're going to spend the next 45 minutes to an hour talking about... Principally, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, and Greg Maddox, but well, really the Braves pitchers of the '90s. That that is a great subject. We'll, we'll try to do our best to focus on it for 45 minutes. But my gosh, what, the, the best starting rotation in the history of Major League Baseball, um, our Atlanta Braves of the '90s. So yeah, what a fun thing to talk about is. As our, all our many listeners know, we've been covering great Braves players of, in franchise history during this offseason, and there have been some great ones. Um, but this rotation and those guys we're talking about, Hall of Famers all, of course, but it's not just individually, it's what a collection. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, you can see and, I'm excited about it. And, and part of why we're putting them together is that we got off on our schedule and missed some weeks. But in some ways, it does allow us to focus on how consistently great for about a decade the Braves rotation was. And again, it isn't just that these strength. guys are great pitchers, Hall of Famers, three of them, some other really good ones. But the combination of three Hall of Fame starting pitchers that played together and were consistently great for a long period of time, I don't think there's ever been anything else like it in Major League history. I, I don't believe so. I was trying to think about this. There really isn't that kind of collection of talent in one pitching staff for that long. You obviously right. had Koufax and Drysdale, and they were accompanied by some good pitchers. Yeah, you got a couple of Hall of Famers who would have pitched together for several different teams over the years. That one comes to mind. Um, the Orioles of the late 60s, early 70s had a lot of great starting pitchers. That might be the one closest. Ha- one Hall of Famer and several. I mean, they had the 420-game winners one year. But it's, but Dave McNally and Mike Cuellar were really good pitchers, but you know, not quite at this level. And, yeah. and that they didn't stay together that long either. Right. That, that the Braves had Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz for almost a decade together. And what's really amazing looking at it is that you might not have predicted greatness out of any of those three. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I, I want to start with Tom Glavin because he came to the Braves first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that makes it easy. But Glavin grew up in uh, Balerica, Massachusetts. Right. Where he was a letterman in hockey and baseball. And in fact, was such a good hockey player that he was taken in the fourth round, 69th overall, in the 1984 NHL draft. Yeah, I I know nothing about hockey, but one thing I've always heard is that Tom Glavin had a shot. He could have been, you know, an NHL hockey player. Pretty high draft pick, but Wikipedia, over I should point out, also notes that he was taken quite a few rounds ahead of uh, two future Hockey Hall of Fame inductees in Brett Hull and Luke Robitaille, but I also want to point out the way that I do with baseball. So were a lot of other guys who never did anything at all. Right. So 
But he was a serious hockey player, but he also was taken in the second round of the 1984 draft by our Atlanta Braves. Right. And, I mean, he was clearly a good left-handed pitcher out of high school. Yeah. On the other hand... the kind of guy that... um... I mean, we all know about Glavin and his major league stuff. I mean, he never had a 96-mile-an-hour right. fastball. Um, but and the guy, he, he was a good pitcher from the start, and he made it to the major leagues fairly quickly after that. Um, I, you know, this we're talking about the mid-'80s when all the – after the Braves had been good in the early-'80s, by 1985, we're pretty much the worst team in the league and remain so for the rest of the decade. So you start looking to the future, and Glavin was – you know, one of those guys, I remember, hey, they got this young pitcher they drafted. He's looking pretty good. Well, in fact, this is the most shocking number I found, and I almost wonder if there's something wrong here. As an 18-year-old in rookie ball in 1984, Tom Glavin struck out 9.5 batters per nine innings. Yeah. And then 9.3 the next year the up, I guess, huh? Well, I mean... He always knew what he was doing, and he wasn't, you know, that devoid of stuff. I mean, compared to normal oh, major leaguers. It's easy to say, oh, well, the guy couldn't throw hard. He threw a low 90s fastball, at least right. when he first came up. And there are a lot of people in rookie ball that can't handle that. But I guarantee you, I didn't see him play, and I don't really know. But I'd bet anything, he already had a good change-up, which yeah. there aren't many 18-year-olds playing in rookie ball that have ever seen anything like that. But there are guys in double A and triple A, right? I mean, the advanced minors, those guys are there. And they know when you're throwing it, they can read you better. And his strikeouts fall off. His walks go up. And actually, he makes it to the majors as a 21-year-old. There wasn't a good reason other than the Braves were terrible. What was that, 87? 87. When he made his first appearance? Yeah, when when the Braves, as as I... I said, we're the, basically the worst team in the league for several years there in the late 80s. And there wasn't much hope inside. I mean, they remained bad for several years after that. But partly the reason he got up that young is because they had nothing else going for him. And Tom Glaffin is a 22, 23-year-old. Only what you could say was he had made it to the majors and he was holding his own and he's a lefty. Yeah. There's nothing that bodes future Hall of Famer. Nobody's thinking Hall of Famer on this guy, right? And at this point in the story, I'm going to pick up with John Smoltz. Mm -hmm. Because the Braves... 87, that's a good time to bring him up. The Braves got John Smoltz in a roundabout way. John Smoltz is a native of Lansing, Michigan, and was selected in the 22nd round of the 1985 draft by his hometown Detroit Tigers. 22nd round, as you say. Make sure people it's, hear that. It's, I mean, guys like John are a dime a dozen. Are making it. I don't know what they are, from, but it's yeah. pretty astronomical. And from the perspective of the, you know, 18-year-old John Smoltz, those guys are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Good power pitcher, fastball slider, working on a changeup. He was big, 6'3", but not huge. He threw hard, but then lots of guys throw hard. And he wasn't good in Detroit's minor league system. Right. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't great. He must not have been that good in high school because a guy that right. big who throws hard, you think would have been drafted higher, but he just never had that good of results, I guess. And the famous trade is coming down to the deadline, right? Oh, yeah. It, it was a deadline deal. Um, I was trying to find the actual When the Braves, of course, are a last-place team, Chuck Tanner's their manager. You know, Omar Moreno is hitting leadoff, and Omar the outmaker. I mean, it was a bad team. Bad team. I mean, the Braves had a lot of bad teams. That that one was one of the worst. Uh, Going nowhere, Detroit, who had been the best team in baseball in 1984, um, you know, Trammell and Whitaker up the middle. Um, They had... You know, a, an aging team making one last run at it before it's all over. And they, they needed help in their rotation to go down the stretch. The Braves had the veteran Doyle Alexander. Not a great pitcher, but a pretty good pitcher. And Detroit needed him, so they traded this guy nobody had ever heard of uh, who hadn't done much for the veteran Alexander. And what did he do down the and stretch? And it is straight up, Detroit? by the way. Yeah, that's what it was, wasn't it? Just I mean, one for one. Th- this is perhaps the weirdest thing about it. 
the Braves basically said Doyle Alexander can do us no good. Well, I mean, it's, we understand that as Braves fans now because we, we've got some veteran we had veteran pitchers last year. We do coming in this year some different ones. If they're doing well into July, of course we'll trade them at the deadline and see what we can get because we don't need veteran pitchers you know what? going it forward. It was a post-deadline deal. It was August 12th. I finally found the date. Oh, I didn't even – I knew it was late. It was It was a waiver-clearing kind of deal, huh? Yeah. And, you know, John Smoltz did something excellent once he got into the Brave system. He was noticeably better as a 21-year-old in AAA. Right. But, yes, again... Smoltz, there was no reason in 1987 to believe he's a future Hall of Famer right. either. Doyle Alexander, on the other hand, had one of the great stretch runs of any pitcher in history. Lead his team. I mean, right. we've seen a few others. I mean, it was at least it was probably better than Verlander last year. It it, it rivals. Oh, you remember Randy Johnson one year? There've been a few mm-hmm. like that. But it, I mean, he what he was like nine and one, wasn't he? In two months, some. I'm doing yeah, this and, from memory. and John Smoltz wasn't that good the rest of that year. Now he was good in '88. Right. And he ends up in '88 joining. Tom Glavin in the rotation. Right. Um, he's he's bad. They're both bad when they first come up. Right. And I I was trying to be nice. They have ERAs over five. Both did, right? Yeah. Um, in 1988 is Glavin's first The Braves had lots of other young pitchers like it over the years um, who come up and right. they have ERAs over five and their careers end up like you'd expect well, for somebody like Glavin that. Glavin goes 7-17 seven and 17 in 88. Seven and seventeen. He's not just gotcha. bad; he's bad every fifth day. Uh huh. Um, Smoltz shows how bad the team is. Right. They can afford they to were, have a guy with the ERA over five. Yeah. Smoltz goes two and seven in twelve starts. By the way. Mm-hmm. Um, nineteen eighty-nine. Smoltz improves. Smoltz all of a sudden turned. The Braves saw something in Smoltz, and he paid it, and it paid off in eighty-nine, as I remember. And in 1990, he kind of falls back a little bit. Right. Lavin is sort of making incremental process. But again, in 1990, he's not very good. Um, this is going and by the ERAs. of course, remember the Braves were in last place yeah. in 1990 once again uh, with these two guys leading the rotation. But No reason to think you're looking at anything different going forward. In 1990, they get joined by another pitcher, Steve Avery. Right. Avery. Number one draft pick, I think number three overall from just a couple of years before out of high school. Also out of Michigan, I should point out. That's right. Two guys from Michigan and one from Massachusetts. But Avery. uh, He is special. There is more reason to believe he's going to be a star. Um, He he was, I'm right, wasn't he? He was like the number three pick overall. Exactly. And and that was like in 88. By 1990, he was already He's on the big league the club rotation. as a 20-year-old, two years out of high school. Now, what I also remember about Steve Avery in his rookie year, 1990, he had an ERA over five. Yes. Um, these are young, promising pitchers for the Braves. That's all they are. And in fact, success so far as major There's an argument that Pete Smith might have the best career of Atlanta's young starting pitchers at the time. Merker's another one. Uh, they had led lots of young pitchers. Well, it was not a real reason to believe Glavin or Smoltz are going to be better than Ken Merker. I mean, no. Here's the deal. Pete Smith was slightly older, but also had like had actual success. Right. That's that's. Yeah, he and Glavin came up around the same time, if I remember right. Um, but what gets me is, and this is something we talk sometimes about, is this going to be, you know, a harbinger for the future? Or should we... Well, obviously, you know, what we're talking about today, you, if, you, if you care about the current Atlanta Braves, you can't help but think about this. A bunch of young arms, all unproven, who's going to make it? And in, 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 your, in your flights of fancy, you think, hey, maybe the Braves could do what with this young group, what happened with that group. But, but you got to put yourself back. There's, there was no real reason to believe, even as late as 1990, that they were going to have this great pitching staff in the 1990s. But you know what they did in 1990 as well as bring up all these guys? They hired Leo Mazzoni. There you go. And 
I mean, also importantly, they got Bobby Cox on the bench instead of in the front office. And yeah, those two that, things that's... together, I think, helped because the fielding independent pitching was always fine for these guys. Right. The, they were never great. Glavin was rocking about a 3-8, according to baseball reference. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's 7-17 seven, seven and 17, back then, you know, win-loss records. Right. So many people looked at it, so that's the main measure of a pitcher. We now know, in retrospect, that didn't mean much of anything. But um, Glavin was not as bad a pitcher, pitcher as that record yeah. would indicate. Not as bad as his ERA would indicate. And he's also pitching in, in probably the best hitter's park in the National League, too. you got to remember right. that. People didn't take account park effects. But so here's they what happens. better than the record would have indicated. We We've gone know. over this before, so I don't want to harp on it too much. But in 1991, the Braves remake their roster to focus on defense. I mean, they also got Lonnie Smith, so maybe not entirely, but... Yeah. You know. But no, they trade for Terry Pendleton, Raphael Belliard, they get Sid Bream to play first base, all of whom have reputations of being excellent defensive players. They already had they Mark Lincoln. They had the new GM... Right. John Sherholz, Bobby Cox takes over as field manager, and they stated, they were real clear, uh, we have all these young pitchers, we need to have good defenders behind them to support their confidence and, and so they can turn the corner. And you move Ron Gant to left field from second base. Yeah. Um, you make Mark Lemke semi-regular. Mm-hmm. These things all help, and you see it in the performance of these pitchers. Yeah, I don't know if having these good defense defenders behind them was was the main factor but but they all became very good in the same year and at the same time in that same year glavin you know ended up a 20 game winner and led the team to the division but steve after pitching half a year with an era over five as a 20 year old by his age 21 season 1991 he was excellent but the most remarkable might be john smoltz right because Smoltz, he turned it around himself, but only halfway through the right. year, right? He was not good for the first, first half, half of '91. He was bad, and the Braves weren't actually. You know, think well, about the, Braves that's the worst too. of the first year. They were only about 500 at the All Star break in 1991. They were what, like nine to ten games behind mm-hmm. the Dodgers. But then they turned it on. And a large part of that was John Smoltz became an entirely different pitcher in the second half. Glavin and Avery pitching well. Smoltz all of a sudden becoming the John Smoltz we we came to know. That's a damn good pitching staff. Um, And they had the veteran Charlie Lee Brand along with them. In 18 starts in the first half of the year, Mm -hmm. Smoltz had a 5-1-6 ERA with 70 strikeouts and 44 walks over only 106 innings. Smoltz only struck out 70 in 106 innings. That's interesting. Well, but then in the second half, he lowers his walks to 33, raises strikeouts to 78, but that's in 123 innings. And in 18 starts, goes 12-2 and instead of 2-11 and because his ERA is essentially cut in half from 5-1-6 to 2-6-3. Yeah, that, that's, that's just one of the most remarkable turnarounds, and it happens right in the middle of the season. And it coincides with the Braves going from being a 500 team, which was great. They hadn't been a 500 team for many, many years. Um, and all of a sudden, a remarkable run. And they, you know, come down the stretch and they win that thing. But what's interesting to me there is John Smoltz doesn't strike out more people. He doesn't seem to find other stuff. He just seems to be walking fewer people, giving up fewer home runs, and making guys make outs. Yep. Smoltz famously consulted a sports psychologist Mm -hmm. because everybody knew the guy had great stuff. What's wrong with him? And um, I I wouldn't have any idea how that works, and that's behind-the-scenes stuff. But somehow there was a a mental transition, too. He became a lot tougher. um, Sure, whatever, I guess. That's what they said. What do I know? My point was more the stats bear out that essentially he was pitching to contact which always sounds dumb to me but i also grew up on the 90s braves and that's i mean it worked yeah and glavin of course was never a strikeout pitcher right um get that ground ball to second base that's what you need 
walk a guy and then get a double play. That's Tom Clavin. And Steve Avery continues to improve. And by the way, I always think of Steve Avery as a power pitcher because he threw hard. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't striking guys out at a ridiculous rate. Yeah. And one thing you got to remember, Will, is people didn't strike out at the same rates they do now 20, I know 25 this. years later. But it's I mean, you still... know that. But, you know, nowadays, striking out more than a batter in inning, that's sort of standard for and a power Avery's pitcher. That didn't happen. Best years, which were really 91, 92, and 93 when he was 21, 22, and 23. Right. He averaged 5.9 strikeouts per nine inning and then 5.0 and 5.0. I would have told you, well, yeah, he didn't strike out more than a batter inning, but it was probably at least seven or eight. That that kind of stuns me. He goes up Um, to seven the next year and he starts getting worse and his arm mm -hmm. breaks down. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting is these guys, Glavin in some ways was the most remarkable pitcher. Oh, I, I love Tom Glavin, one of the most interesting I mean, pitchers ever. Because Tom well, Glavin yeah. had a ninety mile an hour fastball and a good change off of that fastball. But he that didn't was have it. a good change. He had a great change right. up. He did not have a even a good breaking ball. He would throw a curve or a slurve. Yeah, he um, had a show me slurve. Uh, but against a right handed batter, he had two pitches. He had a fastball. And he had a changeup, and he threw it to um, a couple of locations, right on the outside corner and further off the outside <laughs> corner. That was Tom Glavin's stuff. And I exaggerate only slightly. Right. He would occasionally bust a guy inside, but only because they were reaching out so far. But it would it would be six inches inside. He, right. he did not miss by putting it on the inside corner. But it, or um, he I mean, would throw it almost way out over the plate, trying to get yeah. one off the outside corner. Right. Yeah, he busted in on their fist. That's true. And and he would do that where they thought it was going to hit him in the head. They'd back up, and it was like a strike. Exactly. You know, I tell you, I saw Tom Glavin pitch. God knows how many innings over two decades, pretty much. Um, he never threw a ball down the middle of the plate. No. Never. <laughs> never. I saw it. I mean, there's so much to be learned from watching Tom Glavin. Obviously, he's a good athlete with a good arm, but man, that guy knew something about batters and what. But he could also throw enough strikes that that they couldn't sit back, right? Oh, right. I mean, he Tom Glavin is known as a people would say he's a control pitcher because he didn't strike out that many. He did have a great fastball. He also walked a fair number of people. He'd walk about three guys per nine innings throughout his career. Right, but that's because Tom Glavin wouldn't give in, as they say. Um, he would rather walk a guy than throw a ball down the middle of the plate. And um, he had that changeup that he'd throw in the outside corner to a righty, and they'd roll it over to Raphael Belliard. Double play. Yep. And Smoltz, I think, had some of that when he got good, right? Smoltz was a different kind I'll of pitcher. I'll give Mazzoni credit for, for, you know, Mazzoni always said uh, one pitch matters. And that is the fastball, and yeah. that is command of the fastball. It doesn't have to be that hard. If you can throw your fastball exactly where you want it to be, you'll get major league hitters out. Uh, and that's what he preached over and over again. And, and Smoltz, who could throw the ball through the wall, yeah. I think finally caught on to that. Put that fastball where you want it. Um, Smoltz had a lot of great – Smoltz had a great curve and a great slider, two very different pitches. He ended up with a pretty good changeup later on. I don't remember at this point. He developed he a, split a splitter as a closer And then he started field. throwing a, you know, side devastated. Pitch and, he always um, worked on a knuckleball and a screwball in the bullpen, yeah. but I don't think he ever threw it in a game. Yeah. Um, but with all of that, it's command of that fastball. That's what Leo Priest and that's what those guys did. And, and you put the fastball where you want it. And if you can change speed, you can get major league hitters out. And never quite give them what they want. That's the key. When I say command of the fastball, I mean throw it at the knees, throw it on the corner. If you need to, throw it over the strike zone, uh, but you don't throw the fastball out over the plate. Well, and, you know, I saw something because there was a documentary on MLB Networkers on recently about Tony Gwynn. Against Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz, Tony Gwynn hit like 390-something. I knew he he had a great record against Maddox. But I should have realized but they probably didn't. Think other about someone there. like Tom Glavin. What are you going to yeah. be able to do? If you're one of the world's best slap hitters ever, you might be able to line the pitch softly into the outfield. Yeah. Glavin isn't Glenn giving up home runs. Was hit a, a soft line drive over the shortstop's head. Yeah. yeah he, 
he could lay back, fastball change up, he could do that. And, you know, Glavin develops his own style, Smoltz buys into the Leo Mazzoni thing, and then in 1993, perhaps the best marriage of athlete and coach ever, when Greg Maddox works yeah. with Leo I mean, Mazzoni. the Braves already had probably the best rotation in the National League. Because Certainly. it's hard. People don't remember Avery as well because his career, you know, so sadly. Because after 1993, he did nothing. Avery, I mean, what a great postseason. He he, he pitched some great games. Mm-hmm. Um, 91, 92, and 93, Avery was every bit as good as Glavin and Smoltz. His arm didn't work, and he didn't have that kind of career. But anyway, you're joining those three with the reigning Cy Young winner right. in the National League. Greg Maddox was already the best pitcher in the league. He's a free agent after the 92 season. The Braves are ready to spend some money. They've you know, been to the World Series now two years in a row, come up just short um, in the offseason. Everybody thought they are going to sign Barry Bonds, who was the, you know, the best player um, in baseball, and he's on the free agent market. But instead of signing Bonds, they signed Greg Maddox. And I remember at the time, a lot of people thought, why are they doing that? That's not what they need. But, man, did that ever work. It worked. So, I, I want to read you some stats from Maddox's 1992 when he was 26 with the Chicago Cubs, really came into his own as a great pitcher and won his first Cy Young. Greg Maddox started 35 games that year and pitched 268 innings. Yeah. These are both leading the league. He only gives up... 201 hits. He only walks 70 batters. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, he strikes out 199. So, yeah. you know, it's 6.7 strikeouts per nine, but it's almost like three strikeouts to every walk. Right. Here are the crazy numbers, though. He only gives up 6.8 hits per nine innings. So he only has 201 hits. He's not walking many guys, so his people walks and hits per innings pitch, 1.01. Here are the two weirdest numbers to me. 0.2 home runs per nine innings. He gave up seven home runs. All year long? While pitching, pitching in Wrigley, Wrigley Field. Field. Yeah. <laughs> and then weirder... Maybe the wind blew in all year there. He hit 14 batters. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't crowd the plate on Craig No. Maddox. Now, you know, some of them might have been he, he off the hands He didn't hit anybody by accident either. Oh, yeah. Greg Maddox put that ball exactly where he wanted it every time. You know, they were probably all off the forearms, too. Of course. Right. right. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the guy the Braves got. And then he almost got better in a way. He did get better. Those numbers you were talking about, 92. Well, that was, you know, Cy Young year. The first of four consecutive right. Cy Youngs for the guy. And, oh, got by the way. better over the next three years. Tom Glavin would win in 91, mm-hmm. and then John Smoltz would win in um, 96, right? Right, yeah. So, so every Cy Young from 91 to 96, six consecutive years, went to one of those three guys. Um, who were now teammates in our narrative. Glavin won another one in 98 or 99, then, yeah, if I remember right. He won right. in 98. So think yeah. about that. For seven out of eight years, it's one of these three, and they are teammates. Right. Right. And Maddox, we've talked about Maddox. We have waxed poetic about him. I mean, it's I say I love Tom Glavin, and I love Tom Glavin because he basically got people out with a with a fastball that didn't even do much, and it was about 90 miles an hour, and he had a changeup. Maddox was, a lot of people would say Maddox is similar. He never had a great breaking ball. He also got people out with a fastball and a changeup. And Maddox had a change. The two best changeups you'll ever want to see were Glavin and Maddox. The difference is Maddox had the great command of his fastball but it also moved you remember so well a left-handed batter crowding the plate um, and Maddox throwing that fastball with just a little bit of cut on it um, away from the left-handed hitter and they jump back and the ump sticks up his right hand because that ball coming in at the guy's belt all of a sudden it darts over the inside corner but he could do that on either side of the plate moving it either way Maddox had a great fastball. It wasn't a 
98 mile an hour fastball, but it was a fastball that he could put exactly where he wanted well, it with late movement. Yeah. You could not hit the ball hard off that guy. It was 92. It jumped two inches at the end. Yeah. And he threw it exactly where he wanted to. Yep. And um, I think also it's the, you remember a guy in his later career too. So Maddox played until he had an 86 mile an hour fastball. And was yeah. still but he was throwing a low 90s fastball with great movement uh, right on the corner and darting at the last minute. You, you, you can't hit that ball. I mean, you, you can put wood on it. He struck out a fair number, but people just did not hit the ball hard off of him. Tony Gwynn hit him well, but that's because Tony Gwynn wasn't trying to hit the ball hard, right? No, you and also, Maddox thought, if I give up a single on the first pitch to this guy, I'll focus on the next one. Keep my pitch count low. Maybe get a double play if a slow righty's up behind him and come out ahead. You know, people that have studied Maddox, I forget, Rob Nye or somebody always called him the smartest pitcher who ever lived, and he was. I mean, Glavin, I mean, these guys understood pitching. And, and let me go back to the common denominator. Leo Mazzoni uh-huh. was their pitching coach. I got to give Leo credit, but these guys also knew what they were doing. Maddox, though, more than any other pitcher, had the reputation remembering every single pitch he'd ever thrown to anybody and what they did with it and he's thinking you know eight pitches ahead if i throw this and then i throw this by the time i really need to get him out in the seventh inning this is what i'm going to do and i'll put it exactly where i want with the movement and it'll work and apparently did that over and over again and he threw strikes and he worked efficiently if you look at his strikes and walk um in, in like 94 and 95 by that time he was not walking anybody yeah um but the, um, he the, still struck out a fair number, not more than a strikeout an inning, but a good many strikeouts. Maybe but no walks at all. <laughs> the most famous game he ever pitched. He goes on July second, nineteen ninety seven, to Yankee Stadium to face the team that just beat him in the World Series, and is right. one of the best teams of all time, largely on the strength of they didn't have an automatic out. Right. Right, What a great lineup, top to bottom, yeah. uh, Here are the numbers that famously get said. Nine innings, three hits, no walks, eight strikeouts, one pickoff, one double play, 84 pitches, two hours, nine minutes. 84 pitches, a complete game. Can you imagine that? Um, It's, It's a kind of pitching that people always say more people should do. And I don't, the more I think about it, the less you can teach it. I think that's true, but yeah, hell, easier said than done, right? Because um, if everybody could could put their fastball exactly where they want it every time they pitch, and especially do it with some movement, <laughs> um, of course they do it. But it, it must be a lot harder than Maddox made it seem. You know, the other funny thing about Maddox was, you know, Glavin was a, obviously a very good athlete. He was a good hitter. Um, he, had, he had been drafted, you know, by the NHL. Smoltz was a great athlete, a pretty good hitter, field his played, position. Smoltz played football in high school. Yeah, big He's guy, like good a athlete. Golfer. Great, great golfer, yeah. Um, Maddox didn't look like an athlete, but obviously he must have been. You know, he wore the glasses, and he's kind of unassuming. Um, but you couldn't do what he did. Now, Maddox, of course, was a great fielder of his position. Mm-hmm. He got the gold glove every year. I don't know if he was actually the best fielding pitcher in the league, but he had that reputation. These guys um, just knew what they were doing out there. He seemed to have gotten more opportunities because so often guys would be sawed off. How many comebackers on the mound did he have to field? And the soft one, too. Right. Um, I have to imagine playing behind Greg Maddox as an infielder was a joy. Of course. Because... he there was plenty fast. of action. You didn't have to sort of get back on your heels and think, well, maybe eventually something will happen here. He, guys are putting quickly, the ball in He's throwing strikes. The ball's in play. No one's hitting the ball hard, right? <laughs> right. You're not exactly. having to deal with rockets and, you know, things. Um, you know, he might let a guy loop a ball into the outfield, but you'd be ready for a double play ball. Yep. So you look good that way. The, the stories about Maddox are always great. Um, there's supposed to be some time that he allowed Jeff Bagwell to get a home run that didn't matter for the outcome of a game because he knew that he'd face Bagwell in the postseason and thought Bagwell's going to be sitting on this pitch and I'll just never throw it. Um, That's an Eddie Uh, Perez story. Apparently he did remember every pitch he ever threw to every hitter and and what they did with it. And he used that information.
Uh, he once told Marquise Grissom when Gary Sheffield was coming up, he said, I'm going to throw him a slider and make him just miss it so he hits it to the warning track. He did that, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I hear a lot of those stories, and I have a hard time believing them, but, but everybody tells them, and there must be something to it. There, there are two stories about him when he gets traded to the Dodgers way later in his career and is basically able to hang on because he knows what he's doing. He has no stuff. Right. Um, Mid-80s fastball, yeah. So crazy. And he's talking to Brad Penny, and Brad Penny, who always had great stuff, goes, what if you called my game? What if you, you know, talk to the catcher and we just follow what you say? And Penny is like <laughs> his best start all season. That's not the other surprising. one is, I forget who is pitching, but he's in the dugout, and the guy goes into his windup, and Mattis just says, duck, and a foul ball goes straight into the dugout. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Before the ball ever leaves right? the pitcher's hand, he knows where it's going to go off the bat. Yeah. But this is a quote I love, and it gets to what we were saying earlier. He said once, people think I'm smart. You know what makes you smart? Locate your fastball down and away. That's what makes you smart. <laughs> yep. Um, and that's what all these guys had in common, including their pitching. Because locate that fastball. Uh, down and away is good. That's the far and away the best place to put it. Uh, every now and then you put it somewhere else, but you never put it over the middle of the plate. Mm-hmm. And Maddox's numbers are unreal. Oh, yeah. As His I- ERA in the mid-90s. When, you know, the steroid era, everybody's crushing the ball. He's got ERAs well below two. <laughs> He's got well, 1960s type ERA, like, like a 1968 ERA in 1994 and 1995. He, here's his 1995 numbers. He had a lower ERA actually in 1994, but the numbers in many ways are more eye-popping for 95. He went 19-2. and two. Wins and yeah. losses don't matter that much, except when you 19 go nineteen and two, and two yeah. you're in the decision and you get the decision. Right. Um, he had ten complete games, three shutouts. He threw two hundred nine and two thirds innings, while only giving up one hundred forty seven hits and twenty three walks, and only hitting twenty three walks. So and over two hundred innings. <laughs> he's allowing basically point eight less than one, one walk runners. per inning. Yeah. Oh, inning. Mm-hmm. Most innings against Greg Maddox, there was not a base runner. That doesn't happen. Uh, he only gave up eight home runs in his yep. 200 innings. That works out to .3 per nine innings, so only every third full game he would pitch would he give up a home run. He managed to strike out 181 while, again, never having that kind of stuff. Basically, nobody's getting on base, no. and even if they do, nobody hits the ball out of the park again. Oh, yeah. and by the way, he did all that in 28 games. Because it was a strike-shortened season. Oh, right, yeah. These, these are unbelievable numbers. I yep. mean, add and, and again, seven or eight context, more games. This is when all of a sudden uh, offense is exploding. Yeah. Uh, people are hitting the ball out of the park everywhere. And how many home runs did he give up? Um, he gave up eight. Eight. And only 23 walks. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, it's, it's probably unfair that Maddox had his best seasons around the strike mm-hmm. because what if he had gotten, you know, 24 wins in 95, would that change the way people think about him? He actually got well, 19 people wins think a lot. pretty highly of him anyway. Right. Um, but this is, do people think of him as one of the great pitchers of his generation? Or one of the great his pitchers two of best time? years, probably in terms of statistics were 94 and 95, both strike short years. That's true. Um, his very peak. He remained excellent for many years after that, but 94 and 95 back-to-back were just two of the most incredible years ever. And, you know, these guys stay together for quite a while. Um, Maddox is on the team through 2003. Tom Glavin is on the team through 2002. I was actually at Tom Glavin's return to Georgia game in 2003. Oh, right. Um, yeah. But, that but did not go well for they acquired Maddox in the... In before the 93 season, basically they had 10 years together, right? And um, the coda there is more interesting on John Smoltz's part because Smoltz in 1998 is very good. Right. He goes 17-3 and three on well, the Well, he's the Cy Young winner in 96. I mean, right. Glavin and Maddox had both already won their Cy Youngs. They were dominant. Smoltz was sort of the um, underachiever relatively, and then he was dominant in 96. Yep. But and then in, in 98, 98, he's great, right? 
he's great, but he also only throws 167 innings with 26 starts because he starts having arm trouble. Yep. He, which by the way, we we hadn't made clear. Glavin and Maddox both pitched never, for never like had 20 years without ever going on the DL. I mean, ever. Yeah. Glavin literally did not go on the DL for anything until he was like 40. Right. Um, I think Maddox doesn't have that record because like people have weird ankle things. Um, you know, you run the bases fine. Still, Maddox was never, he never had arm trouble. No. But John Smoltz misses the entire 2000 season. He had Tommy John surgery. He, um, he has to get. He also Tommy had a John bad surgery. shoulder. Both. Yeah, he he is thirty three. His career might be about over at that point. Yeah. He would have had a fine career. He comes yep. back. He clearly can't start. So what does he do in two thousand two? He sets a National League record for saves, although that gets broken instantly. Um, but he yeah, goes, he's the best reliever in baseball at that point. Right. Um, he gets fifty five saves, and, and the games. whole idea was his arm is so bad. His arm is he's shot. Not able idea. to pitch, you know, seven eight innings at a time. Let him go out there for an inning at a time, and maybe it'll work better. That and was, it that does was work. The idea behind it, and it worked. Yeah, he's, he has he's a one point one two ERA in two thousand three. One point one two. Okay. Um, he is the he was the second person ever, and I think there's still only two. Him and Dennis Eckersley. To have had a twenty win season and a fifty save season. Oh right, guys yeah, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have a good starting career and then become a reliever. They're but, the only two who are really good starting pitchers and great relievers. You know what Dennis Eckersley never did though. Eckersley was a pretty good starting pitcher and a great reliever. Smoltz was both a great starter yeah. and a great reliever. And he returns to the rotation. <laughs> That's the most amazing thing. This bad arm, this almost, you know, his elbow is repaired with Tommy John surgery, and I think that was okay. But yeah. his shoulder was, you know, ground beef. It, he really, and shoulders are, are in some ways harder to overcome because the surgery doesn't work. Right. And yet, he, he was a damn good starting pitcher. Once he, when did he start again? 94? I mean, 04? Uh, no, it was 05 that he goes back. 05, the Braves last... He's 38. Um, yeah. He's 38 years old, returning to the rotation. He has a 306 and ERA in 33 starts. Excellent. I saw him pitch, um, actually, the last game he pitched that season in the playoffs against Houston um, in Atlanta. Um, game the Braves won. He beat Roger Clemens, and the rookie, Brian McKinney, yeah. hit a home run off Clemens. Uh, unfortunately, that's the series that went back to Houston and had that amazing 18-inning game. And Kyle uh, and was Farnsworth. not going to be able to pitch again. I remember at the end they said his arm is absolutely shot. But he gave them what they needed. Uh huh. Next year he comes back, 35 starts, 349 ERA. <laughs> yeah. Um, he still had age 39 at that point. And Smoltz is now on our TVs all the time. Right. Uh. If you didn't know anything, if, if you're 20 years old and you don't remember John Smoltz as a pitcher, you see him all the time on TV. But why wouldn't a 20-year-old remember? He was pitching in 2007. Well, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a 12-year-old. Okay, the 12-year-old doesn't remember. But it's it, it's kind of crazy to think about. And, you know, we brought up Steve Avery at the start. The, the fourth guy in these rotations was actually usually impressive, too. Um Denny Nagel came along for probably so, the actually, best. Actually, let's go back. 91 and 92, the first couple of years, they were good. Charlie Liebrandt, soft-tossing lefty. Um, you know, like a 15-game winner, not great, but he had been good with Kansas City, a good guy to have. Um, they didn't need him anymore after that. Um, he was not a reliever. He lost the seventh game of the 91 oh, World wow. Series, but that's not his fault. I'll blame Bobby for that. Okay. Uh, but anyway... They had Denny Nagel, who won 20 games, get the guy from the Pirates. Then they developed Kevin Millwood, who was, you know, yep, not not Hall of Fame material, but all-star caliber type pitcher for several years. Hell, they came up with Jason Schmidt and gave him away, although that's partly because Jason Schmidt didn't get along with Leo for some yeah. reason. Then they came up with Adam Wainwright, traded him away. Yeah, but, I mean, that was his, he was very young and we got J.D. Drew, so... I know, they but they had one Jason year, J.D. Drew. And, but the point is, they developed a pitcher who became, you know, one of the best pitchers of, of right. his generation, Adam Wainwright. He was 19 or something, though. I mean, Right. I know. I'm not... You never know about pitchers. Um, but that's the point is, they developed a lot of these guys. And, and really, 
you know, in some ways, this is almost the Leo Mazzoni show, although we shouldn't discount the talents of them. We haven't talked that much about Leo, but yeah, what, what do all, what's all this have in common? Leo was the and, pitching coach through all this time we're talking about. And consistently throughout this time, the Braves would come up with relievers who either had been good five years earlier or were in the independent leagues or no one had ever heard of or were ever on a prospect list, and they'd be great. Mike Reminger was right. an excellent reliever. Chris Hammond. Chris Hammond. <laughs> I mean, Chris Hammond literally had an okay fastball and a pretty good changeup. Yeah. And Greg McMichael earlier. In oh, the 90s, right. An okay fastball, a great changeup. Leo's kind of pitcher. He turned out to be a really good reliever. Um, Kerry Leitenberg literally got signed for the independent league. They get out of the independent league. Good for a while. Now, the truth is, the 90s Braves had a reputation of never really developing the bullpen, and they lost some crucial postseason games in the late innings, um, and their bullpen didn't come through for them. Um, but it's not that they didn't have some pretty good pitchers. Mike Stanton, by the way, um, ended up with a very long career. He came along at about the same time as Glavin and Smoltz, another good young pitcher, had a great career for a long time. I mean, you said that before we hit record that you didn't want to bring up Mark Wohlers because then you think of Jim Leyritz. But I do want to say, apart from that, Mark Wohlers had a hell of a 96. He was he was dominant um, for several years, probably the best relief pitcher in the league. Unfortunately, he made a, he a poor moment. pitch selection choice and a poor pitch to Jim Leyritz in the 96 World Series. But the idea that they'd ever had a good bullpen is crap. Yeah, um, they had a very good bullpen. They, they happen. You know, postseason is a crapshoot, right? And they happen in small sample size. There were a few games where it didn't work out so well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had they had just a hell of a pitching staff. Um, and, and by the way, as you know, as a Braves fan, when they first came to Atlanta, um, the Braves were known as being a great hitting team and never having a good pitching staff. Other than Necro, they really never had much of anything which is why I just reveled in the 90s so much. All of a sudden, they had great pitcher after great pitcher and lots of other good ones. And pitching is um, so important, And which is why, by the way, turn our attention back to the upcoming yes. season. Um, I know there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. They'll break your heart. But most of them don't make it. But the Braves have so many young pitchers that show potential but it's still pretty exciting to me to think that if some of them turn out, I know they're not going to be Hall of Famers. Mike Soroka is not really Greg Maddox. I'll, I'll, I'll try to resist those comparisons. But it is fun to see young pitchers who all of a sudden figured out and turned it on. And um, To me, pitching is the most interesting part of baseball. Um, and having watched the 90s Braves, you just couldn't have anything more interesting to watch if that's what you care about. And having a good staff makes it so much easier to win. Of course. And that's um, a hard thing to get to. It's almost impossible to win without it. With a great pitching staff, you'll be a competitive team no matter what else you got. Well, the, the one team that's the counterexample is the Big Red Machine. Literally, though, the Reds of the 70s were good at every single position. If, if you have, you know, basically the, the same kind of starting lineup in the field that the Braves had on the mound in the 90s, yeah, you're... Right. Hall of Famers at several positions and stars elsewhere. But how often? I mean, the, 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 the I've given you the one example. Baseball history, the same way the '90s Braves yeah. are. And what's encouraging about building up pitching prospects in volume is you might get a shot at this, right? Maybe That's someone the whole turns idea into Steve behind this Braves rebuild. But you know, they're not all going to make it. But if you have enough with that kind of promise, if two or three turn into all-star yeah. pitchers. You're going to win the division. Um, but the Braves of the 90s didn't have three All-Stars. They had three Hall of Famers. In <laughs> exactly, yeah. They and had three guys who were like among Ken the top Merker 50 pitchers. Ken started two no-hitters. We haven't even talked about him, <laughs> really. <laughs> oh, that's Kent Merker's role. And also, Kent yeah. Merker had two no-hitters. Um, yeah. And one of those was finished by Alejandro Pena, another reliever off the scrap heap. Um, right. But... You know, it, they are the... I mean, I talked about Chipper as being the icon of my childhood. But really, these are the guys that I think of when I think of my childhood baseball memories. Yeah, if 
think about your, your childhood following baseball, Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz. That's what it's all about. Well, and I've mentioned that I play rec league softball, and I'm a pitcher out there. And if I need to refocus, my mental you image. Command your fastball out there. Well, but my mental softball. image of what to do is the calm of Maddox and Glavin on the mound. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Don't change expression. Just right. stay cool. <laughs> Same thing. You know, and it. But I have that in my head because I grew up a Braves fan in the nineties. Except they stayed even keeled, and they could locate yeah. their fastball whenever they wanted to. Well, that's what Fulton. It's not so much his facial expression; it's right. that he needs to locate the damn fastball. If he'll do that, he'll, he'll be successful. I think the facial expression is tied to he gets annoyed with himself, he gets bothered, and now he can't do it. And now he over some of that with Smoltz early on. You know, exactly. that was part of what was going on. He was a very emotional kind of pitcher. He always remained kind of emotional, little highs and lows. But but the difference, of course, is Smoltz learned. If something bad happens, you got to be able to come back the very next pitch and do exactly what you want with it. And the Smokes learn that. That's what our friend Fulty needs to learn, I think. Yeah. But um, we can hope that Mike Soroka does turn into the next uh, Greg Maddox and uh, his good friend Colby Allard turns into Tom Glavin. Uh, Ian Anderson is going to have to be John Smoltz in this scenario, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we can also have some Steve Avery's, uh, we're going to have some of those, of course, Mike Stanton's that helps your team. We're going to have some Pete Smith's along the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, he had a good year for like the Phillies once anyway. Um, or my thing of Tommy green, cause who cares? Um, yeah, he did. Yeah. For the Phillies. I mean, I think Pete Smith did something at some point, but, uh, you know, it's fun that this might happen. We don't have a Leo, but. Uh, I don't know. I kind of seem to know what you have to do. Learn how to throw right. a fastball in the outside corner. Don't give in. Don't give anything away. And everything else will work better. Yeah. But we anyway, can hope. Uh, whatever will happen with these pitchers, you know that you can count on us to talk about it right here on the Channel 17 podcast. Coming to you to talk about the Braves every week from the Productive Leisure Network. Online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com. You can listen to all of our episodes. Uh, if you want to hear us go over all those old seasons and fun memories, or the not-so-fun memories, we've done that too. You can also find all of our episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. And do please, if you're listening there, subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating for it, and then leave a review, because you can help us to get onto charts and be heard by brand new listeners. You can also help us be heard by brand new listeners by talking about us on social media. We are at Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. Go there, share our posts. Spread the word. What we're doing. Yes. Um, we also have a Channel 17 Twitter, but it, nothing happens there. We've got to figure out. Um, yeah, one of these days it. I'll figure out yeah, how to tweet. But I've got to figure out how to get a 60 year old man to do Twitter when I don't know how to do it. So this is a problem. Right. Um, well, there's a 70 year old man who does it, but that's not exactly the role model. Right. But, we'll avoid politics in our talk. Sorry I brought it up. Yeah. Just try and copy Bill James. He only, you know, figured it all out. But if yeah. you want to. Hear any of uh, what we're doing with the Productive Leisure Network, you can find us on Twitter, at Prod Leisure. Same thing on Facebook. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.